I was looking for my 17-year-old Brady. I don't think he's here yet. We got word from Brady a bit before service that he was going to be late today. He was going to be late because one of our dogs had rolled around in all manner of filth in our backyard, and he needed to clean her before getting to church. We have one, we have three dogs, and one of them is all white. It was her. And our water heater broke last night. So it's a frowning providence. Brady, we thank you for your service, wherever you are. There are, you've heard me say this before, if you've been here studying this book of Ephesians, it could be broken into two parts. Part one, chapters one through three. Part two, chapters four through six. In those first three chapters, Paul is telling us, this is what you should believe. It's theology, it's, it's deep doctrine. This is what you should believe. And then chapters four through six is... This is then how you should live. This is what you must believe. And now here are the, the practical implications of all that. Here is the application of all that. Here is what this means in your day-to-day -day life. And so that second section began in chapter 4, verse 1, with Paul saying, I, therefore, a prisoner... For the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then we've got three chapters, we're almost done, of what it looks like to live our lives in a manner, in a way, that is worthy of this great calling that we've received. And then down in chapter 5, Verse 21, Paul had said, look carefully how you walk. And then he said in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we as Christians should defer to one another. We should be humble toward one another, considering others better than ourselves out of our love for Christ. We have a uh, a deep willingness to put other Christians first, to put them before us. This is submission that we're all a part of in the church. And then Paul, he addresses families to describe submission in three different family relationships. In chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, Paul described the submission of a wife to her husband. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the submission of a child to his parents. And now today, in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6, Paul will describe the submission of a bond servant. Or some of your translations might say a slave to his master. The first two, husbands and wives and children and parents, that has been relatively easy for us to relate to and to apply. But this third is, this is a lot more difficult 
slaves and masters. So, by way of introduction, I'd like to say three things regarding bond servants and masters. Number one, servitude was widespread in Paul's day. That is the relationship between a slave or a bond servant and a master. Servitude, it was widespread in Paul's day. In fact, in a city the size of Ephesus, it is likely that one in three people in that city, and so even in that church, would have been a slave. So you can imagine as you look around this room and just count every three people, every third person in a church like the one that this letter was written to would have been a slave. It's estimated in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. So they made up the vast majority of what we would call the workforce, which means that most of the jobs in Paul's day, they were carried out by bondservants. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Number two, servitude in Paul's day, it was definitely not the same thing as historical North American slavery. It was a different kind of thing. Slaves were rarely kidnapped and they were rarely trafficked the way they were in the 17th through the 19th centuries in this country and elsewhere. Many slaves became slaves voluntarily in Paul's day. Often they became slaves voluntarily to pay off some sort of a debt, and then as soon as that debt was paid, the expectation was that they would be freed. And third, servitude in Paul's day did share some sad similarities to North American slavery. Slaves were wrongly seen as property. And they were often abused. Many slaves in Paul's day committed suicide, which one author remarks is sufficient evidence that cruelty towards them was widespread. So you may have heard this before. Some preachers, if you've heard texts like this one here or a very similar parallel, which we'll look at in Colossians chapter 3, some preachers have drawn a sort of straight line from bond servants and masters in antiquity to employers and employees today. But Based on what I just said, I don't think we can do that in good conscience. They're so different. To be sure, there are some principles embedded in this text that apply to, to you and apply to your work specifically, and we'll point those out. But again, this institution does not exist anymore, certainly not in our culture. It was unique to Paul's day, and we really have nothing like it to compare.
And yet, here is, I think, the main point behind what Paul is saying here. It is striking and it is profound and it certainly applies to us today. Even slaves and masters under the lordship of Christ and in light of the gospel must do good to one another. A striking and profound principle that still applies to us today. It is his main point behind these verses. And let me say it again. Even, imagine that, even slaves and masters under the lordship of Christ and in light of the gospel, even slaves and masters must do good to one another. Regardless the nature of our varying relationships, our varying relationships at work, at school, at church, in our home, we are called to do good to one another. So may Paul help us to do just that in our text today. But first, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, through your word and by your spirit, we ask that you would teach us now for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 920. In chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Paul's overarching point to the Ephesians was that even slaves and masters under the lordship of Christ and in light of the gospel, they must do good to one another. And Paul will make that point first by addressing slaves. And he addresses slaves, look at verses 5 through 8. He will call them to do good to their masters, to do good to their masters by obeying them from the heart and for the Lord. And then in verse 8, he'll remind them of what they know that enables them to do good to their masters, because that would not be an easy thing to do. And then second, Paul will turn to masters. He does that in verse 9, and he will call them to do the same thing, to do good to their bondservants, and he will also remind them of what they know that enables them to do good to their servants. So let's begin by reading Paul's words to slaves. Verses 5 through 8, we'll read all four verses, and then we'll work through them one at a time. Here's verses 5 through 8. 
Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So here Paul, generally speaking, he calls bondservants to do good to their masters. That is how he summarizes their behavior in verse 8. Whatever good anyone does. And more specifically, we see in verse 5, the way these bondservants were to do good to their masters was by obeying them. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. And then in the verses to follow, the end of verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7, Paul describes what this obedience looks like, and we learn two things. Bond servants should do good to their masters by obeying them, first, from the heart, and second, for the Lord. Now, it's probably a good idea at this point to address what some of you might be thinking or what I was thinking the first time I read these verses here, or what is similarly said in Colossians 3 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that is, why doesn't Paul tell these slaves to run? Why doesn't Paul tell these slaves to fight for their freedom? Why doesn't Paul tell these slaves to resist? Why doesn't Paul, take the opportunity here to say this kind of servitude, it is all wrong. Or why even address bond servants? Why doesn't Paul just address the masters and tell them to release their slaves? Or why not just appeal to Christians in general and use this opportunity to call them to work for the abolishment of slavery. And you're going to be disappointed to know that I'm not sure the answer to those questions. <laughs> I think it's impossible to know for certain why Paul doesn't say what Paul doesn't say. But this much is clear, and I've found that this is enough for me. Maybe it'll be enough for you. This much is clear. These words from God, here and elsewhere, these truths that God says, understood by God's people, caused the immediate transformation and the eventual destruction of this institution. So that is true. Why Paul doesn't say more than he says, I 
I don't know the answer to that. But it is certainly true that the truths that are in Scripture caused the transformation of this institution and eventually led to the abolishment of slavery. It was and has always been Christians with God's word who fight for the abolishing of slavery. Nevertheless, here was Paul's instructions for the bondservants in Ephesus. First, they should obey from the heart. That is, they should obey sincerely. They should want to obey. They should mean to obey, and so they should obey. That is what Paul means. In verse 5, when he says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. And then in verse 6, he says, From the heart. And in verse 7, when he says, Rendering service with a good will. He means they should not be two-faced about this. They should not just put on a show. They should not be hypocrites. But he is saying that they should willingly obey their masters from their hearts. What a call. Imagine being a slave hearing those words read from the pulpit in church. Bond servants were typically considered part of the family, which is why they're included in these instructions to the family. And so they would have been present, they would have been in attendance, but imagine being one of those bond servants who was treated well hearing this, and then imagine being a bondservant who was mistreated or even abused by their master. And you're hearing Paul's call to obey your master from your heart. That's heavy. It's almost unimaginable for us. And then second... They should obey for the Lord. This is exactly what Paul told submissive wives, you'll remember, and children in the verses before. When wives submit to their husbands and when kids submit to their parents, they are not ultimately doing it for their husbands or for their mom and dad. They are doing it for the Lord. And it is the same thing here. In fact, understandably, Paul is even more emphatic with slaves than he was with wives and children. If you look in these four verses, Christ is mentioned in each of them. Sorry, three verses, five, six, and seven. Verse five, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. 
verse 6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, you're not doing this for your master, ultimately. You're not doing this for men, but as bondservants of Christ. In verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. When Paul addresses the bondservants in Colossae, he says this in Colossians 3, verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. John Stott, in his commentary, had this to say, The Christ-centeredness of this instruction is very striking. The slave's perspective has changed. His horizons have been broadened. He has been liberated from the slavery of men-pleasing into the freedom of serving Christ. His mundane tasks have been absorbed into a higher preoccupation, namely the will of God and the good pleasure of Christ. What is the why behind your obedience? What is the why behind any work that you do, it's God. This supplies motivation when you otherwise don't have it. I'm doing this for God. It raises the standard. Since I'm doing this for God, ultimately, I want to do it in a way that glorifies Him. So regardless of what someone else is asking of me or requiring of me, I'm not doing it ultimately for them. It's for God, which raises the standard. And it brings meaning, doesn't it? If this is for God, then it brings meaning even to the seemingly mundane and meaningless work that you might do. So bondservants, Paul says, must do good to their masters by obeying them from the heart and for the Lord. And what a difficult calling. Again, it's hard for us to Imagine why Paul wouldn't say something else. Why would he say this? Of course, none of us are enslaved. None of us have been enslaved in this way. None of us actually know what we would need to hear from God were we in this kind of circumstance. Of course, God knows. And this is what he has Paul say to these bondservants. He, of course, knows 
what a difficult bar this is. He, of course, knows how difficult it would be for them to obey this instruction. And so, in verse 8, he reminds them of something. This is the pattern, you know, in all of Scripture. In some ways, that's demonstrated in the very structure of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 4 through 6, Paul, I'm going to give you a lot of really difficult things to do. I'm going to tell you about what it means to live the Christian life, and it is not easy. So let me spend three chapters giving you the the knowledge of God that you're going to need to know to do this. And then here and elsewhere, God will give us a, a very difficult task, a very difficult burden, and then he will be kind to give us the knowledge that we need to pull it off. And so he does it here. Here is the foundational knowledge beneath that obedience. Here is what bondservants, slaves, Paul is saying, here is what you know that enables you to obey your masters from your heart and for the Lord. You already know this. I'm going to remind you. Here's what you know. Verse 8, knowing That whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Colossians 3.24, that parallel text we keep referring to, Paul says the same thing, but with a little more detail. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. For the bondservant, for the slave in this context, in that day, it must have been a pressing question. What will I receive for all this work? What will I receive for all my obedience? For many of them, there was no paycheck. There was no finish line for many of them. There was no future freedom in sight. So, What will I receive for all this work? What will I receive for giving up my life in this sort of obedience? And what does Paul say to those who do good to their masters for the Lord? He says, God will compensate you. God sees you. And nothing you do, no work goes unseen. 
your work from the heart for the Lord, it will be rewarded. And your reward will be great. And it will be after this life. It will be in heaven. We shouldn't be the kind of people who are pursuing rewards in this life. That may or may not happen. If it happens for you, I'm happy for you. What we're promised is that we will be rewarded in heaven. And so to heaven we look. Next, Paul turns to masters. That's what he had to say to the bond servants, and then he turns to masters, and he simply has this to say. It's far less that he says. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Do the same to them, Paul says. Masters, do the same to your bond servants. That is, do good to them from the heart and for the Lord. For example, Paul says, stop your threatening. Do good to your servants. And just like he did for the bond servants, Paul gives the foundational knowledge that is necessary for masters to be good to their slaves, even though they were immersed in a culture that placed these slaves beneath their masters and saw them as mere property, as just tools to be used. And Paul's calling to masters is very high. Be good to them. Treat them the way you want them to treat you. Do it with sincerity of heart and do that ultimately for God. Well, here's what they knew that they needed to be reminded of in order to do what God was calling them to do. Verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Again, very similar to what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, he wrote, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The world may see you differently. The world may see you as unequal, but God does not. Remember that, Paul says. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That truth in particular is the cornerstone of the abolition of slavery. These masters needed to understand that their bond servants were their equals. More so, they needed to understand that their bond servants were their brothers. As they sat in this church believing together, these slaves that they were tempted to mistreat or abuse to see as unequal, Paul reminds them that they are your brothers adopted into the same family of God. Your master, the Lord Jesus in heaven, is their master, the Lord Jesus in heaven, and he shows no partiality. One commentator wrote, Instead of regarding his relationship with his slaves as that of proprietor to chattels or of superior to inferiors, he was to develop a relationship in which he gave them the same treatment as he hoped to receive, renounced the unfair weapon of threats, and recalled that he and they both shared the same heavenly master and impartial judge." And so this is Paul's message to bond servants and masters in the church at Ephesus. Even slaves and masters under the lordship of Christ and in light of the gospel must do good to one another. In conclusion, how will we apply this? I hope and expect you've already thought of ways to apply this. I trust and expect that the Holy Spirit in you is already applying this to your life. As I said in the introduction, we should not draw a straight line from bond servants and masters to employees and employers. Nevertheless, there are principles that can be applied to your own vocational work. At your job, you are in voluntary subjection to your employer, and you must obey your boss from the heart and do it for the Lord. Employers, same thing. You must do good to your employees. You must not be harsh with them. You must not Give in to the temptation to lord your authority over others. But there's something else that I suggest we take home in this text. It's something deeper. It's something that transcends culture. It's something more profound. And that is to see Christ before us in all that we do. To see Christ before us in all that we do. 
In a sense, that is what Paul does for these bond servants and masters. He, he puts Christ before them and reminds them that everything they do is for Christ. Now, if Christ could bring meaning and purpose and value to the life of a slave, which is what he does, his message is not get out of this relationship because you have no meaning, purpose, no way to fulfill the will of God in this thing that you're in. That's not his message. His message actually, doesn't it, brings meaning to what they were doing. It brings purpose. It brings value. Well, if Christ could bring meaning, purpose, and value to the life of a slave, surely, 21st century Americans, Christ brings meaning, purpose, and value to you, to your life, to whatever your lot is. This is how John Stott put it. Our great need is the clear-sightedness to see Jesus Christ and to set him before us. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. Can the same be said in relation to the masses of industrial workers with tedious routine machine mending to do and to miners who have to work underground? Surely, yes. So what difficult calling are you facing? You know, I don't know. What difficult thing has God given you to do? Difficult in that it's painful what God has given you to do, to go through, to endure. Maybe it's painful. Maybe it's difficult in that it is just mundane. Maybe it is difficult in that the future is uncertain. What do you need to remember in these difficult callings? Well, we're reminded here that we need to remember that we are bond servants of Christ. You don't work for him. You don't work for her. You don't work for this. You don't work for that. You work for Christ. You serve for Christ. You give the good deeds that he's prepared beforehand for you to do for his name's sake, for his glory, to please him, to glorify him. We are bond servants of Christ, and he is 
the best master. So we take God at his word, always. We take God at his word. We love him. We do whatever it is he's given us to do. We do good to those around us, knowing that we do it all for Christ. One of the things that our master has told us to do is to take communion together. He told his disciples this first in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we still today, two millenniums later, we take this bread and we take this cup and we do this in remembrance of Christ. We do this in remembrance that he has made a way for us to be saved. That he, by coming and living in our place and dying, being raised from the dead in our place, has paid the price so that we could be reconciled to God. And now as a part of his family, as brothers and sisters in the same family, we gather together in this dining room, if you will, every week, and we take this small symbolic meal together and remember Christ. If you're here and you're visiting, you're welcome to take communion with us. If you are a baptized believer, you've turned from your sin, you've placed your faith in Christ, committed yourself to him and to his people. And so you're a committed part of this church or another church that preaches the same gospel. You'd be welcome to take communion with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve. We ask you come forward through the center aisles and take the bread and juice and return to your seat. And then if you would please wait, and then we'll take it together as the family that we are. Will you pray again with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. You're giving us the word that we need to live. It is through your word that we come to understand who you are, who we are, and how it is that we could be in a reconciled relationship with the one who has made us. Thank you, God, for now teaching us week in and week out, giving us everything we need for life, for godliness, everything we need to be content, everything we need to have joy, Everything we need to be the children we want to be, that is, children who please their Father. Thank you, God, for forgiving us, 
over and over again for taking our sin and removing it as far as the east is from the west and for doing this based on the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd be honored in this time, glorified, receive our praise as we obey you and worship you through this bread and through this cup. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.